will you from me? Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are bringing you the first of two A24 movies. Number one and number two in our top ten. And the first one is... Witch! Witch! <laughs> the Vivitch. The Vivitch, that's right. Mm-hmm. The Witch is a... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can't do that when there's no H. There's no H in there. The Witch is a 2015 folk horror film written and directed by Robert Eggers... Not Eppers. That's right. In his feature directorial debut, it stars Cow Eyes or Anya Taylor Joy in her first <laughs> film appearance, along with Ralph Ineson, Kate Dickey, Harvey Scrimshaw, Ellie Granger, and Lucas Dawson. It's set in 1630s New England, and it follows a Puritan family who encounter forces of evil in the woods beyond their farm. They're evil in them, their woods. An international co-production of the U.S. and Canada, the film was widely released by A24 after premiering at the Sundance Film Festival. The film was a critical and financial success and is considered to be one of the best horror films of the new century. Here, here. Yes, sir. And or ma'am. The music for the film was composed by Mark Corvin. Okay, listeners. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Wouldst thou like a taste of butter? What's that like? The taste of a cream salad? I don't know. <laughs> wet cream salad. Of a wet Grinch salad? <laughs> this is the witch. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. this family. Let us leave the wood. 
One household, low in dignity, and fear buttfuck Egypt where we lay our scene. From ancient satany break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. <laughs> it's so Shakespearean. How timely. In 1630s New England, English settler William, played by Ralph Innocent, and his family, wife Catherine, played by Kate Dickey, teenage daughter Thomason, played by Cowies, preteen son Caleb, and young fraternal twins Crotchfruit 1 and Crotchfruit 2 <laughs> are banished from a Puritan settlement over a religious dispute. They build a farm near a large secluded forest, and Catherine bears her fifth child, Crotch Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> One day, when Thomason is playing peekaboo with Samuel, I don't crotch goblin, near the edge of the woods, the baby abruptly disappears. Catherine, devastated by the loss, spends her days crying and praying. As a blight has afflicted the family's crops, William decides to go hunting to prepare for the upcoming winter. He takes Caleb to the woods, where he discloses that he secretly traded Catherine's prized silver cup for hunting supplies. When they get home, the twins have riled up the family's billy goat, Black Philip, and William quickly puts the goat back in its pen. Catherine chastises William and Caleb for disappearing, and Thomason for not watching the twins well enough. Thomason is sent to wash William's clothes in the brook, and when Crotchroot One bothers her, she teases the girl by saying she is a witch, gave Crotch Goblin to the devil, and signed his book. At dinner, Catherine questions Thomason about the disappearance of the cup, and William remains silent, letting her take the blame. That night, the children overhear their parents making plans to send Thomason away to serve another family. The next morning, Thomason finds Caleb in the stable preparing to catch a trap in the forest and forces him to take her with him. They spot a wabbit, which, <laughs> which sends their horse into a tizzy. <laughs> the horse's name is Bert. <laughs> their dog, Fowler, chases the wabbit, and Caleb runs off into the woods to chase after him. The horse throws Thomason, knocking her unconscious, and runs away. Caleb becomes lost and discovers Fowler's disemboweled body. Now following the wabbit, he stumbles upon a hovel from which a beautiful woman dressed in a red cape emerges and kisses him before her decrepit and clawed hand pulls him in. William finds Thomason and takes her home, and Catherine scolds her for taking Caleb into the woods. To defend his daughter, William finally admits he sold the cup. Later that night, Thomason finds Caleb outside the cabin in the rain, naked, delirious, and mysteriously ill. The next day, the twins tell Thomason that Black Philip told them she made Caleb sick, and when Thomason attempts to milk the nanny goat, blood comes out of the udder. Caleb awakens and begins to convulse and scream and rant fervishly. After he vomits up a whole rotting apple, the twins accuse Thomason of witchcraft and claim to forget the Lord's Prayer before falling into convulsions themselves. Catherine, William, and Thomason say the prayer over Caleb, which calms him for a moment, but then he amorously proclaims his love for Christ and dies, believing Thomason to be a witch. William tells her that Christ can undo her bargain with the devil if she admits the truth. Thomason calls him hypocritical and weak and accuses the twins, aided by and under the influence of Black Philip, who she says is Lucifer, of bewitching the farm. Enraged and confused about the identity of the culprit, William seals his living children in the goat house and says the family will return to the English settlement in the morning. Thomason denies being a witch, 
but the twins do not answer when she asks if they truly speak with Black Philip. Catherine and William bury Caleb, and Thomason observes William break down and ask Christ to punish him for his pride and cowardice, but save his children, and then eat dirt to show his contrition. That night, something lands on the roof of the goat house, sneaks in, and drinks blood from the nanny goat before turning to attack the twins. Thomason sees that it appears to be an old, naked woman who cackles as Thomason loses consciousness. In the cabin, Catherine has an hallucinatory vision in which Caleb and Samuel have returned. Caleb says Catherine can see them often and asks if she will look at a book. She tells him to wait while she feeds Samuel, but the baby is actually a raven that pecks at her breast, leaving her bloody in the morning. Peck, peck, peck. Damn, she mutters. That's the third time this week. <laughs> Silly crotch goblin. William awakens in the morning to find the goat house destroyed, the goats eviscerated, the twins missing, and an unconscious Thomason lying nearby. As she stirs, Black Philip suddenly gores William, killing him. Upon viewing the scene, an unhinged Catherine attacks Thomason and now accuses her of seducing William and Caleb, in addition to causing the tragedies of the befallen family. In self-defense, Thomason tearfully kills her mother with a billhook. Now alone, with her utter devastation, Thomason falls asleep at the table in the cabin until after dark. She's awakened by a chiming sound coming from the goat house. She follows Black Philip inside and urges him to speak to her as he must have done with the twins. The goat responds in a human voice, asking if she would like to live deliciously, and materializes into a dark-clad man in the shadows. He tells Thomason to remove her clothes and sign her name in a book that appears before her. Thomason, accompanied by Black Philip, enters the forest, nude, where she finds a coven holding a witch's sabbath around a bonfire. Chanting, the witches begin to levitate, and Thomason joins them, laughing as she ascends above the trees. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's right, it's such a fairy tale. My God, even like reading the last lines of this, like in synopsis form, just gives me fucking chills like the end of this movie does. Yeah. So love it. The Witch premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 27th, 2015, then widely released on February 19th, 2016 by A24. The film earned almost 9 million opening weekends, securing the number 4 spot at the box office. Other films in the top 10 that weekend include Deadpool, Kung Fu Panda 3, and Zoolander 2. Quite the competition it had. Mm. The Witch would never rank higher than the 4th spot, but would still go on to be considered a financial success for the distributor, grossing more than $40 million against a reported budget of $4 million. Wow. Yeah. The Witch holds a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 60%. Oddly, well, we understand why. Yeah. The site's consensus reads... As thought-provoking as it is visually compelling, The Witch delivers a deeply unsettling exercise in slow-building horror that suggests great things for debuting writer-director Robert Eggers. Does it? I mean, it did. Yes. Did we get it? Some people say yes, some people say no, just like they do about this movie. It's true. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it. I feel that this is kind of a critical darling. Yeah. For the most part. 
But with audiences, it's, you know, I feel like they think it's pretentious or they really wanted something a little bit more straightforward in an ending. Yeah, and I think a lot of that had to do with marketing. So, right. Okay, interesting. Writing in Variety, Justin Chang commented that a fiercely committed ensemble and exquisite sense of historical detail conspire to cast a highly atmospheric spell in The Witch, a strikingly achieved tale of a mid-17th century New England family's steady descent into religious hysteria and madness. Peter Travers, in his Rolling Stone review, gave the film three and a half stars and wrote of the film, Building his film on the diabolical aftershocks of Puritan repression, Eggers raises the witch far above the horror herd. He doesn't need cheap tricks. Eggers merely directs us to look inside. Mm. Stephanie Zacharek summarized the movie in Time as a triumph of tone writing that, quote, although Eggers is extremely discreet, the things you don't see are more horrifying than those you do. The picture's relentlessness sometimes feels like torment. Agreed. Very well said. However, some critics, as well as audiences, were less pleased with the film. Ethan Sachs of the New York Daily News wrote that the film does not suffer from the cinematography, acting, or setting, and early on it, quote, seems the witch is tapping a higher metaphor for coming of age, or religious intolerance, or man's uneasy balance with nature, or something. It doesn't take long into the film's hour and a half runtime, however, to break that spell. Well, this person just didn't get it, I don't think. I agree. I mean, there's some people that just won't like it, which is fine. But this person obviously just didn't get it. I mean, I completely disagree with that. I feel like the the longer this movie goes on, the more it casts its spell and just makes it that much more compelling. Yeah. Critics noted that the film received backlash from audiences regarding its themes and slow approach to horror. Leslie Coffin criticized A24, saying it was a, quote, huge mistake to market The Witch as a terrifying horror film, not because it doesn't fit into the genre of horror, but because of the power of expectations. The less you know about this movie, the better your experience will be. But everyone who saw it opening weekend probably walked in with too much knowledge and hype to really get as much out of it as they could have if the film had the veil of mystery. I don't share that opinion because I remember the trailer and I love the movie coming out of it. I don't think it's shared too much, but I but I was a fan of like highbrow horror and slow slow burn horror too, so. Oh, for sure. But for and the people like expecting The Conjuring or something, like those popcorn horror fans that, that believe in the horror ghetto still, mm-hmm. you know, they probably weren't fans of this. Well, and I feel like I'm always weary of movies when they come out and say, like, the scariest movie you'll see this year, the scariest movie of blah, 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 you know? Yeah. And I know that... It's scary. It is scary, yes. But in a different kind of way than I think what mainstream audiences are expecting. And I think that if people saw the trailers for this, and I remember, like a lot of Sundance critics were being quoted during some of these like trailers, especially TV ads saying like, this is like the most frightening movie, blah, 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 you know? And it is very scary. Just not for the reasons that people who are going to go buy a ticket would think. Maybe they're, maybe they're expecting the Dolby shocks and there's like yeah. virtually zero Dolby shocks in this movie, mm-hmm. which I like. I, I agree. I, I feel like things are scarier when they're not being like thrown into your face. If, if I'm slowly getting terrified because of the, the mood and like, mm-hmm. and because of what they're not showing and things like that, like that's the stuff that'll keep you up at night. That's true. But then again, we are very like stringent horror fans who watch a lot of everything. We, we know what we like and what we don't, but yeah. Um, I have grown over time to be very weary about people claiming to have like the scariest fucking movie ever, you know? Yeah, that's, that's 
fairly subjective as well. Yeah, that's true. So it did get some accolades. At the Independent Spirit Awards, it won Best First Feature and Best First Screenplay. Good. At the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, it was nominated for Best Score and Best Supporting Actor for Ralph Innocent, And it won for Best Film and Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to Don't Breathe. Wow. Mistake. Best Performance by a Younger Actor. And that means that Kawai's lost to Tom Holland. For what? Um... One of the Captain America movies where he played Spider-Man. What? Civil War, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he was barely in that movie. And yet he won the Saturn Award. Over Cow Eyes. Over Cow Eyes, who is just fucking brilliant. Well, in she this wasn't movie. in movies before this that no, I saw. It I was didn't her know who she was. And I remember yeah. watching this and going, wow, that actress, this mm-hmm. whole cast is amazing. Really. Yes. But she knocked it out of the park. And she I was really like, did. she her career is set. And it was. Right. Like ever since then, she's been big. Like This really opened up all of the doors for her. It did. And I love it. I love it when I watch a movie with someone that is unrecognizable to me or who I know is like brand new to film or acting. And then you you see someone like that and you say there's big things for her. You know what I mean? And I feel so much justification now with her career because after I watched The Witch, I was just like, she's brilliant. She is going to be just fucking amazing. And like, look at her now, you know, look at her. She is every fucking thing. She's huge. And just for for those of you that might be Johnny Come Lately's, the whole cow eyes thing. That was when I was trying to describe because I forgot her name. I was like, she's got doe eyes. That's what I wanted to say. Because that's a thing, doe yeah. eyes. But I said cow eyes. <laughs> and so ever since, we've called her cow eyes. And we have t-shirts. <laughs> that's right. I'm wearing mine now in, uh, in honor of cow eyes herself. I could, got to stop calling her that because I now call her that in like normal conversations yeah. with people. And I was like, oh, cow eyes. And they're like, excuse me? Or like, come what? And I'm like, oh, my God, listen to my podcast. We mean it very endearingly. We, yeah, we do. We love cow eyes. We love Anya Taylor-Joy very much. When I was watching this, someone made a comment and they were like, I feel like her eyes have grown further apart the older she gets. And I was like, I don't know if I should laugh at that or not. <laughs> like, come She's on. beautiful. Stop she it. is beautiful. She's uniquely beautiful and just a very, very good actress. As well as our other cast, mm-hmm. uh, Ralph Innocent, uh, who plays the father in this. I've noticed him. He was on Game of Thrones. Yeah. He also plays the Green Knight in the Green Knight mm-hmm. uh, and a number of other things. Katie Dickey also on, on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, you know, also with a weird breastfeeding situation on Mm -hmm. that show and she was also in the green knight as guinevere uh and then like this like i would have expected another kind of big career making for harvey scrimshaw who played caleb because if anyone has like an oscar moment it's him yes and i don't know i think i was so wrapped up the first couple times that i watched this movie with anya taylor joy that i did not realize how good he is! He is one in of the this. best death scenes ever written, like for for an actor, really. I mean that fucking monologue and his delivery is just impeccable. I don't know. I mean, like, so I was watching this and my mouth was agape. I was just like, my god, what a good performance in that particular scene, Oscar clip, like no other. And I was just like, how could I have not like latched onto this? I think I've finally seen the movie so many times that I can start paying attention to things that are not Anya Taylor Joy or like setting, you know, or goats. Uh, and then we have the we have the twins, which I don't I don't care, you know. They're, they're just being twins. They're, they're being little crotch goblins. They're being little yeah crotch fruit running around. Yeah, and I think the judge. Uh, or whoever that was uh, mm. supposed to be in the settlement was an actor that I recognized, but 
I'm not sure. I wouldn't be able to tell you his name. Yeah. I don't know. Should we just talk, start talking about the, the movie a little bit? Yeah. And that's what we're here for. I mean, of course. I will say one more thing about this cast in this movie. Yeah. If there are anything that I like in film in general, not just horror movies, it's small cast and small locations. And my God, that is the Vivich. Intimacy. Intimacy. Right. So let's talk about the background a little bit. Okay. So this is from Robert Eggers. Not Eppers. It's funny how I can never remember his name. I always call him Roger Eggers. And like, anytime I do that, I know you pointed out to me like, but it's almost your name. And I'm like, it really is. It's missing two fucking consonants. That's it. And so he went on to do the lighthouse, of course. And then most recently the Northman Two mixed results. I think both were expertly made. Um, Not either, neither of which is as good, nearly as good as the witch to me. Yeah. But they're a little out of my wheelhouse or my lighthouse. I still haven't seen the North button. I might like it better on a second watch. I don't know. Maybe it's just a little tedious for me. Um, But anyway, so he grew up in New Hampshire and he was uh, inspired to write the film from his childhood fascination with witches and his frequent visits to Plymouth plantation as a schoolboy. So after unsuccessfully pitching films that were, too weird or too obscure, Eggers realized that he would have to make a more conventional movie. So this <laughs> is his version of a popcorn film. <laughs> oh my God. The Lighthouse, I think, is much more in line with like what he wants to do. Versus the Northman, I think, is a little bit more venturing back into like seeing if he can do like an epic. Yeah. You know, but I feel like classic uh Eggers, like looking at his whole oeuvre, like 30 years from now. Lighthouse would probably be the beginning of a string of, of things that are going to be much smaller, more intimate, more obscure and weird. You know, the witch only hinting at something because this is him trying to be a normie. <laughs> I would not call this film conventional by any means, but I mean, good for you, Robert Eggers, I guess. I mean, I, you created a movie that I like, you know what I mean? And I, I think I like it because it's not conventional. Yeah. But maybe presented so. So somehow director Alfonso Cuaron got his hands on this script because I think like one of his producing partners, uh, Robert Eggers producing partners was, you know, was got his hands on it and was like, even though it was unfinished, he shopped it essentially. And, and cause he thought it was amazing. And so Alfonso Cuaron, who of course did, you know, little princess, uh, great expectations, children of men, Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban, which is arguably the best Harry Potter movie, gravity, Roma, uh, he read the screenplay back in 2013 and said it made him more than anything curious. And then he's quoted as saying, I was just in awe of it. It's as if those supernatural elements are as natural as the weather and people coexist with those elements as a matter of existence. There's no question about the existence of witches. There's no ulterior explanation. It's just witches. I mean, that's kind of expertly and easily said about this movie yeah and that's kind of the way he he directed this which was like this is stuff is happening as natural as day you know like he's not going to shoot the special effects stuff as any differently than he would someone walking across you know the forest and i mean that's that's kind of the way that this movie plays out you know what i mean like there's there's little need for exposition and i feel like we as americans or i mean anybody throughout the world really it's not like witches are a fully american idea right by any means but we're taught as children in school somewhat about you know 
the witch hunt, witch trials in Salem, right? Oh, yeah. And then we have to read The Crucible and things like that. I mean, it's kind of ingrained in our brains as Americans that this happened in our society, right? I feel like we're not really taught the repercussions of that and how it still continues today, you know, in some form or fashion. But we didn't, we don't need an explanation for this time period that witches would exist to these people, right? Yeah. And we, and we also have some adjacent stuff, you know, like the Scarlet Letter and, yeah. you know, some things like that. I think the Crucible is actually based off the, the Red Scare, right? The, the Bolshevik Revolution and, mm-hmm. and the witch hunt that kind of happened in Hollywood to go back and write a play about what actually happened during the actual witch trials. Oh, yeah. It's all about McCarthyism. Now, this sure. movie actually takes place about 60 years before the Salem trials would take place. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of that you know, where the folk stuff started to begin. Right. And we'll get into a lot of that history stuff in a little bit. Nice. So the production team worked extensively with the British and American museums, as well as consulting experts on 17th century British agriculture. Robert Eggers wanted the set constructed to be as historically accurate as possible and then brought in like a Thatcher and a carpenter from Virginia and Massachusetts who had the proper experience building the style of the film's period. So everything is built as it would have been built with the materials it would have been built with so that everything would be camera accurate, like film and historically accurate. And although he wanted uh, to actually film it on location in New England, the, the lack of the tax incentives meant he had to settle for Canada. He just settled for Canada. Yeah. And so it proved kind of a problem for him because he couldn't find the forest environment he was looking for, even though, you know, like all of fucking Vancouver has all those forests where all those TV shows like X-Files film. Uh-huh. But I don't know why that wouldn't be good enough. So but he had to have the right look and he wanted enough space, I guess. You know, this is a first time director. And they say when you're directing, especially your first time, don't do like remote location. Don't work with children. Don't work with animals. Oh. Well, Three for free. (laughs) (laughs) He really felt that he could do this. Yeah. And so they eventually uh, scouted off the map and found a suitable location in Kiosk, Ontario. That was extremely remote. And he said that the nearest town made New Hampshire look like a metropolis. Oh, my God. I've never been to New Hampshire, but I mean. I so I don't know that they had to like haul, helicopter in or anything. I don't think they had that kind of budget, but it was out there. And they had to think I think they had to, a lot of it had to camp, do camping and things like that. I, I mean, I and I fully respect his approach to this. Right. Because he has created a movie that is it looks very, very authentic. I'm a little more pragmatic, you know, like I feel like if you've got a face of a woods, like there's a billion ways to shoot different things. If you can recall, like you don't have to have an entire world. You just have to have it on this little square in the lens. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of interesting ways to shoot that don't necessarily mean that you have to be immersed as a crew, you know, but I don't know. Maybe he's the filmmaker, not me. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, like for most people watching things, we're not all arborists or whatever. And we're like, well, no, that's not a New England tree. I mean, but I like, I did not know this. I didn't know that they were filming this in Canada. I knew that Canada helped make this movie and maybe parts of it were filmed there. But I I couldn't have told you that was a Canadian forest. You know what I mean? I just assumed it was the United States. Although I think at the beginning where it shows that settlement is actually like one of those like authentic, you know, uh, towns that they've upkept. Oh, yeah. that he used to visit as a kid and mm-hmm. they were able to shoot like the exit of it and then they like, set it up and, and have people there and able to shoot and it was only like one little you know 10 second scene of quick. them exiting mm-hmm. you know that's all they needed and that's probably all the, the time they got was like half a day you know to do it there but he did it and so he's capable of that sort of thinking you know i remember in film school uh we had like uh snow dogs beethoven director you know all, all those like 90s like late 80s and early 90s like family film and he's like 
telling all these stories about other filmmakers that would go way on location and shoot this and do this expensive and put people at risk and everything. And he's like, there was a fall through the ice scene. Right. And uh, like Cuba Gooding Jr. had to fall in. And mm-hmm. he said they were going to take him on location and like do the whole thing and like hide the pool or whatever under the ice and snow and camouflage it and everything else. And what he ended up doing is saying, fuck that and say, we're going to use my pool. We're going to line it with trash bags and we're going to film it at night, you know, and shoot downwards. So it looks like he's, you know, fallen to like this bottomless pit and we're gonna you know and so he just does whatever he can because all that needs to happen is showing up whatever's on on the the lens Mm -hmm. right doesn't matter what's two feet away well there's something to be said about like working smarter and not harder right but yeah but i mean if you're gonna do a beginning to end in one setting like this makes sense i guess you know well and also i think that this kind of attention to detail matters right Especially in a story where, like, the setting kind of becomes a character of its own, right? Yeah. It's it's important to, to be that detailed about it. Maybe not to the lengths that he went, but, I mean... Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Plus, it gives you lots of options, right? If you're on sure. location like that, you can find a new path through the forest that might look better than, you know, the That's one right. thing that you might have available to you in a backyard. <laughs> Anybody just taking a little stroll to take a shit somewhere, be like, oh my god, I found it. But, you know, like, I feel like f- from certain angles, you could film this in, like, Central Park. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know? But I don't, or somewhere here in Texas. Yeah. So the casting took place in England uh, because Eggers wanted authentic accents to represent a family newly arrived in colonial Plymouth. But I have issue with that, too, because received pronunciation, uh, the received action, RP, didn't happen until, like, you know, a little bit after. Mm-hmm. It was kind of happening during this time, you know, but... Uh, it wouldn't have been like the modern, you know, posh English accent until much, much later. And so in actuality, English people back then would have sounded a little bit more like us with like a slight, you know, Irish twang on it. Well, and I feel like some of the characters do. Yeah, they definitely have that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's also to kind of like, you have to be a pragmatist in the sense that, is this going to take people out of the movie who expect them to be speaking in an English accent? You know? And so if that's the case, like at the end of the day, it's a movie, not a documentary. It's true. So, well, I mean, and not every actor is Meryl Streep and can change their accent, you know, left and right or whatnot. But I mean, I have never questioned the way that these characters sound for a moment when I've seen this movie. And even some of like when the accents are different between character to character, right? I mean, like these people are coming from England. They have at some point, And I mean, people just sound different in different parts of every single country. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I have never questioned that at all. This all makes me think about like the look and the feel as part of the, the authenticity, right? And, and the way they shot everything. So it was shot in what would now be considered a rare like 1.6621 aspect ratio, Kind of similar to like Wizard of Oz. Okay. Right. So these older films that were a little little bit more square, not perfectly square, but, you know, almost like that four by three or, you know, and so uh, a little bit more square. So it provides height. So you kind of see the forest and the the height of it, but it also pushes in the side. So it's a little bit more claustrophobic, which is perfect for a story like this. 
Well, yeah, because especially during that first moments where they like they've reached their spot, they've already like fallen to their knees and prayed, right? And then we get to see the expanse of what's around them, right? Yeah. If this was like a desert movie, like you know Lawrence of Arabia or something, you'd want the the spaghetti string, you know, mm-hmm. which is like super narrow, which would have been like two point six six to one or something like that, or two point nine even sometimes, right? And so with this, you know, it's it's a little bit more claustrophobic. It still gives you that height. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, that really worked out for it. And in the lighthouse, he makes that almost a perfect square, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cause I, I watched that moving the theater screen. Right. And it seemed very, very squarish for the large screen I was watching it on. Like this movie, I mean, I didn't see the witch until I was at home. Like, I didn't see it in the theater, but I kind of wish I had because like, it seems very, very tall and like the taller the trees look to me the more I feel surrounded by it, right? And I assume that's what he was going for when he did something like this. And also, uh, he did color balancing, which a lot of period films do to where it's like more grayish, you know, where all the colors are kind of bleached out out of it a little bit, which yeah. also gives it kind of an old-timey feel. It does. I guess. And also to give the film an authentic look, he only shot with natural light and indoors. Um, the only lighting was candles. So, which I actually absolutely loved so there's no electric lighting apparently on this film whatsoever i almost don't believe that yeah um because they'll have like reflectors you know probably to reflect the natural light towards the actors which i I think they they must have had but to give more of an even soft lighting but there's some really good cinematography in this movie oh my gosh there's a scene where they just a little bit scene where they're camping before they get to their final destination Mm -hmm. where they end up building their farm and it's just firelight and it's so framed so well and it's such a beautiful shot it's like a painting you know and there's a lot of little moments like that throughout this film uh, that one's the one that always kind of speaks to me and i get you know cinematography boner every time i see it i feel like this movie and like every single movie we talked about on our top 10 for a24 like they're just fucking beautiful and this movie is no exception like watching this movie i feel completely immersed and i feel like taken aback by how like pretty things and simple yeah you know i mean like you don't have to do much but we're talking about like lighting only with candles and i'm thinking about like that dinner scene right you know like the cup conversation and like thinking back on it, it seems like it was lit by way more than just that. I would have to go look at it again. I think or you told me at the end with uh, Black Philip talking to her, and you can barely see the silhouette behind her. You know, depending. That's on your true. Thing. I mean, because like you can see him transform, like you see the hoof, and it transforms him into a boot as she's walking behind, or he's walking behind her. And I probably didn't notice that until like the second or third time I watched the movie, and I was just like, "Oh, I see the thing." You yeah, know? but. I mean, if he pulled that stuff off, which he did, obviously, like that's that's pretty masterful for a first time like feature director. Yeah. And uh, more detail. Right. This is a very uh, detail intensive director. Yeah. Uh, got a detail intensive costume designer uh, who joined the crew and consulted 35 books in the quote clothes of the common people in Elizabethan and early Stuart England series. <laughs> <laughs> to plan the costumes which were made from wool linen and hemp <laughs> there are 35 books in that series <laughs> clothes of common people in elizabethan and early Stuart england 35 books series that 
could be the most niche thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh my God. So uh, a lot of the film's dialogue is either from or based on the writings at the time. They even put a title card at the end. To That's right. Kind of, and like handwritten accounts of their, you know, supposed experiences with witches and everything else. He also chose the style, obviously, famously on the poster, the film's title as The Vavitch mm-hmm. with two V's instead of a W in the title sequence and on the posters, stating that he found the spelling in Jacobian era pamphlets on witchcraft, among other period texts. And as a side note there, um, that's kind of common, right? W wasn't really common for that right. you know for a letter to be on or available and print, i don't think yeah. it got into wide use until later mm-hmm. same thing with like uh when we see ye old shoppy mm-hmm. that was actually pronounced the it wasn't pronounced ye right right it was just like a stand-in and so i i thought that was interesting it also kind of sets a tone and that's true and i really love that he puts that title card at the end of this movie you know what i mean it just shows that he is a detail-oriented director because he was just like hey i'm just going to point something out just in case you didn't get it yeah. you know i mean but i think it's clear the the use of that particular English in this movie is dead on, right? It's accurate. The things that you're telling me just make this movie seem even more accurate. <laughs> the fact that there's a 35 book series of something that niche, you know, and that they would consult it. And I too would point that stuff out, you know, don't wait for people to like see this movie and comment on it. Like, let us know right away. I mean, I really enjoy that. Yeah. And I like that it wasn't just like some other director just like saying, hey, what does the audience expect and let's do it. Like they really leaned into authenticity versus yeah. like expectations, maybe because you would have expected to see a lot of buckles on hats and, and belts and shoes. And shit That's like right. That, I know? mean, it would be like some sixth grade performance of the first Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? Is what they were trying to create or what somebody else would do. And we've seen that. A lot. It's like watching the play from Adam's Family Values, you know? But he didn't make that movie, right? Eat (laughs) me. I mean, this movie, and like I said earlier, I feel like the setting is just as much a character in this movie as the actual characters in it. And we've talked about movies like that on the podcast before, where like you need this kind of setting, and then the setting needs to be that intrusive into the film and the storyline and the plot. Half the time, I just get lost and what I'm looking at and yeah. what I'm experiencing in this film. And I think that's what makes it so special. So a troupe of Butoh, I don't know what that is, Butoh <laughs> dancers play the coven of witches at the end of the film, creating their own choreography. And they're even speaking Enochian, which is the old school like magic text language, you know, uh, and, and around this time. And they're literally gagging on their words. Oh, good Lord. You know, which is in line with like the twins not being able to say the Lord's Prayer and all that stuff that was part of the folklore at the time. Just that, hmm, that gives me such a boner. (laughs) (laughs) The music was by Mark Corvin, uh, who is very prolific, actually, since like the 80s or 90s. And I didn't know that. Um, This is the, the, the movie that I know, I think, the best that he's done. But uh, Robert Eggers vetoed the use of any electronic instruments and didn't want any traditional harmony or melody in the score. And so Corbin chose to create a music with atypical instruments, including uh, a nickel harpa and a waterphone. What the fuck are those? Don't know. Maybe like the 1600s version of the harpsichord. I don't <laughs> I don't know. But he, he knew the director liked to retain a degree of creative control and obvious OCD. And so he relied on loose play centered on improvisation so that Eggers could move notes around wherever he wanted. Okay. And so I also like when I first saw this, I remembered the kind of the riff of like the chorus rising when anything supernatural would happen. Mm-hmm. Kind of in just like a one note kind of like, you know, like from a 2001 A Space Odyssey. Almost exactly like it, in fact. 
and it's just, just it's like it's super ominous, super dark, and that's the the music riff they use pretty much every time like a witch is doing something or like the audience is supposed to be like holy shit, you know. And they use that to great effect. I feel like I am not always one to recognize like music while I'm watching a movie. It takes me a while, as I've said. And like in this movie, no, this movie is using its music very, very wisely as far as like plot. And, and also tone. rhythmically, like when the witch is like supposedly like chomping up the baby or whatever in her mm-hmm. mortar pestle. Um, and it's going with the soundtrack. Like you're not sure if it's her making that sound or if it's in the soundtrack. It turns out it's the soundtrack. And then later on, like different things that they're using percussively sound like sticks breaking, limbs breaking or bending Mm -hmm. or things like that that are in the forest. So it's super atmospheric and creative. I feel like the score is amazing, right? Again, it's just like part of this part of the setting that really like pulls you into the movie because you're talking about this, that scene where the witch was using her mortar and pestle. And I feel like it sort of rises to that crescendo as she's supposed to be like flying through the air. Right. And it just works wherever they use that. I also can imagine someone saying after dinner, could you please like delight us with the water phone or something? <laughs> so like, the water phone. <laughs> also, what is a phone? Also, what is a phone? <laughs> after dinner, Mr. Depostrophe RC is going to delight us with selections of the water phone. Could you accompany him with a nickel hopper? <laughs> I have to know what these are. Don't scare the wabbit. <laughs> So I also want to talk a little bit about the story construction here because it just like when I was thinking about it as I was watching and not many do where I'm starting to think about how the story was constructed. Okay. A lot of things like they have like a left turn, you know, or something like that, you know, and that where it's okay to have like uh, the string of events happens where it's cause and effect. And then you have like random things that happen, you know, throughout just to kind of give our characters something to do. And that's not always a sin. Now, when that happens a lot. You know, like when it takes a little bit too many left turns, we just talked about some of our top tens on A24. I think one movie in particular we talked about where it starts to go out of left field a little bit, maybe uh, in Fabric was one of those. Yeah. And so there's a lot of therefore in the build, right? So this happens, therefore that happens, therefore that happens. Like they are banished. And so therefore they are out in the wilderness and alone. Therefore they're at risk of nature and whatever else is out there. Therefore Sam gets stolen, you know, versus like in a story when you have, and then, Uh so, and then, and then, and then you're fucked. Generally your, your story is going to kind of suck. But if you have therefore between different story beats, then it's going to work. And all of this pretty much is, is therefore. And uh, usually I don't notice that sort of thing almost never, but the story structure in this is solid. It really is. I mean, all of it is just based on consequence of what happened previously. Yes, it's a build. Yeah. Completely. And it sets off the build not only with their banishment, but with uh, the witch stealing Sam, which sets the tone for the subtle supernatural uh, supernatural part of the story really like insanely well. Because she's just doing peekaboo. And it's one of the most famous parts of this whole movie. And it was in the trailer, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so she covers her eyes for maybe two seconds and the baby is gone. Right from right below her. And all she can see is like the grass moving, you know, and, and uh, the audience later sees that someone in a hooded hooded cloak had taken the baby. The whole point of this is that it establishes that very quickly. Like this is the first seven minutes of the movie. It's actually a much shorter movie than you'd think. And it's much faster than movie than you'd think. It's not exactly a slow burn. It's just that everything's kind of room with a view. We're sitting in the corner arranging matches kind of level <laughs> of drama until it's not. 
I mean, and that's true. And I think we talked about that on our top 10 episode, right? Like, um, I have told people that the witch is a slow burn and I was like, it, it feels like a long movie. And then someone pointed out that lamb is a much longer movie than the witch. And I'm like, I didn't realize that, you know, yeah. it's not that I dislike a slow burn. I just feel like this movie keeps expounding on things and building to its own crescendo. And it, really moves at a very fast pace watching it last night. I was like, this movie is kind of brisk, you know? And I think it's because there are very few of those like weird left turns. It's a very straight line. And watching it last night, I was like, you know what? I don't even feel comfortable calling this movie a slow burn. I think it's just a very straightforward movie that, I mean, maybe it's like the setting or like the time period or whatnot that you would just expect it to be. I think it's the content. I think it's like watching a slow moving you know, slow motion train wreck yeah. with people that you know and care about on it, mm-hmm. you know, it's painful. Yes. You know, but it's over soon, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's filled. It's also very, very dense. It right. Is. And it makes you think. And uh, we should probably get into that because there are a bevy embarrassment of riches of themes in this movie. Oh, my God. It's almost like themes the movie. Onions. Onions of layers, layers of onions. That's right. All those things. Yes. Let's peel back those onion layers, Words. shall we? Words and thoughts. <laughs> Words and thoughts. <laughs> so the first theme is thoughts and prayers. It's actually kind of. <laughs> um, the first major theme that I came up with was the f- obvious, you know, all of these are fairly obvious if you think mm-hmm. about it, you know, which is folk and religious horror, right? And the entanglement of folk and religion in this time. None of the stuff about witches, you know, stealing babies and turning them up in a mortar pestle or lubing up their broomsticks, you know, uh, to, to be able to fly with like the hemlock and everything else for hallucinogens. They're animal familiars like the wabbit mm-hmm. or if, you know, which are actually back in those folk times supposed to have breastfed their familiars. I didn't know this. With blood from their breast. And then you see the crow. Oh, my God. Right? So that's connecting with the breastfeeding the crow. Uh, grinding up the babies into paste. Obviously, like the lubing of the tree limbs or the broomsticks with said paste and herbs as hallucinogens uh, to grant satanic flight or other supernatural abilities. Basically, uh, apparently, whatever they want to do, whatever needs to fit the story mm-hmm. and maybe look like something else or, you know, be able to apparently transport through walls, you know. Uh, and fly, you know, but it's interesting how much of that folk was allowed into religion at the time as kind of a groupthink kind of fear that culminated in like the Salem witch trials. Well, and I feel like at the time of some of these colonies that were created, I mean, obviously people came to the New World or whatever, America at the time for religious freedom. And their religions were different than what they were, what was popular back in England. And so, of course, when they would come over here, I feel like some of their environment would start to seep into like the newish religion they were creating. Well, the Puritans right? were a special breed, right? Uh, for sure. And of course, Church of England wasn't as near as conservative, you know, no. and they were, you know, trying to burn people at the stake and everything else. And, you know, they were banished. <laughs> but I also feel like this movie works by creating a kind of witch that we don't normally see. 
Right. Right. No, this is not pop culture witches. This is actual witches from this time and from accounts and from documents and what they actually believed. And so like watching this movie for the first time, I was kind of shocked and scared. Like this is one of the scariest moments in that movie is when she's grinding up that baby and lubing up her broomstick and flying into the air. Right. And I'm like, I have never seen a witch like this really. No, because it's kind of, it's not kind of, it's very risque. Yes. Very X rated. And so this was a way that they could kind of explore that level of thinking by talking about this is the enemy or something. And that goes into that entanglement mm-hmm. of folk and religion. Whereas normally in religious, like we're not talking about that. We're not thinking about that. We're thinking about God, but they really let this level of entertainment and folk kind of take over their reality a little bit in some cases, I would guess, certainly in this case. Well, they do for this particular family, which is sure. were real. Yes. I mean, like there was no question to them that things are happening because of witches. Right. And we don't have to stop in this story and have a conversation about why or wherefore, you know, I mean, it's just like, here it is. Like witches exist. They are in these woods and this is what's happening to us. And my children are witches, you know, like it's just that common. But this difference between like actual witches versus pop culture witches. Right. Like still it's very, very shocking to me. We don't even see that in movies today i feel like this movie is very singular yeah. in its depiction in that and i don't know how like before wizard of oz like wizard of oz i feel like really cartoonized yeah. that witch and then made it the green-faced wart you know mm-hmm. covered you know and then looney tunes and yeah, like, looney tunes really didn't help anything yeah well i mean it did to make it less scary and more mm, digestible true. and more talkable and, and things like that and children are dressing up as witches and things like that you know but i think like already puritanism or religion in general is kind of fertile ground for this level of paranoia and fear based on that religion right and then you're set with your religion in this new area where you're literally fighting with nature. You're having to like rely on partnerships with Native Americans. You're having to venture out and hunt and grow your own food for the first time. You're not in, you know, in England anymore where there's actual society and civilization. And so this is completely new life, very rough. And they're having to like, we've heard all the horror stories about nature versus man in these types of situations, let alone the fertile ground of religion. They're having to assign meaning through religion and folklore to all of the natural born horror that's given in nature every day. Why did my child die? Why did my child disappear? You know, blaming something through the lens of religion, you know, gives meaning to their life and stories to tell. Well, and these people were completely unprepared for what they were going to experience. Yeah. You know, like people were sold an idea of, you know, we're going to go to this new land and be able to be free with our religious beliefs. Right. And what happens instead is start they a get Puritan here. utopia. Yeah. And so that they get here and it's, it's not a utopia. And in fact, everything they experience and bring into their religion based on their surroundings only brings on paranoia. And I feel like stories we've heard from that time period, and especially this movie, it's just rife with paranoia. The paranoia in this family is fucking tangible. And toward the end of it, when things really start to like hit the fan and like blame is being cast around, like you can just like, it's just palpable how much like they want to believe in their religion and they want to like succeed in this land. But even the family goes back on that. Like we're going to go back in the morning. And um, Catherine is like, I think of England, you know, and like, what did we do? And there's just so much regret and loss and things like that. And I feel again, that's an A24 trope. It's just like in this movie, we get to experience that trope in a much more realistic way. 
And by the end, they pay for their hubris, right? Because nature, in a way, wins. Yes. Right? And there's some questions later on about, is this actually supernatural or is this actually maybe happening in a different way than we think? Oh. Right? So we also have, as a theme, the duality of religion, right? As a source of pride and division and as a source of comfort and hope. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie sets that tone very early on. And maybe that's not a theme versus an idea that the film has, you know, which is common. You know, you're just taking that because religion kind of has that built in. Well, and I'm seeing it play out. Yes, we are. I mean, and as, as far as like one family goes, but I feel like the conversation of, of these two things gets thrown around when talking about religion today. So they, they leave because they're not Puritan enough it's alluded that they are not as conservative or God-fearing as William and his family would have them be. And they kind of oust themselves with a disagreement with the rest of the settlement. Yes. Right. They're kind of, he's kind of like the religious Karen of the bunch. Right. And so that's utter defeat later on when the wife is like, I I miss England because they left England to begin with, to have that period of freedom. right? Right. And then they have to leave again. It's a microcosm of that with them having to leave the settlement essentially. Well, and I think that's, that's very true. Right. And so like the source of, of pride and division is really like in the father, right. In this yep. movie and the mother represents everything about why she comes to this country or soon to be country and doesn't experience all the things that she wanted. Right. So she is kind of like lost her religion a little bit. Yeah. Right. Especially well, with well, the loss yeah, of her children. Oh, yes, exactly. And then I love like just like little uh, Easter eggs, you know, little bits that are just written in like that, that you wouldn't really notice unless you're really examining this movie. Like at the end, but right before he dies, he's gored by by uh, Black Philip, And the, the last thing he says, this is within, you know, hours of him praying to God and, and admitting his pride. Mm-hmm. You know, that he thought he was better than the others and he put his family into a horrible yeah. situation by leaving, you know, and now he's and he's done it again, you know, with his uh, with lying to his wife about selling her cup because of his own pride, you know, which is, leads to cowardice of of like losing your own ego. You know, and the last thing he says is corruption. Thou art my father, which is a, a line from the Bible from Job, who like even in his death is so prideful, essentially, that he's like, even in my death, I am somehow a special case you know, my friends are now the worms and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like pay attention to me. Woe is me, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's kind of interesting that he chose that as his last words, either as like a kind of a, an admission to himself or, you know, at, when I first heard him say a corruption, thou art my father, I thought he was turning his back on God. Yeah. And it's not. It's like a final plea to God that I am acknowledging I'm about to die. Woe is me. <laughs> What a so. fucking difference between like those last words before he dies and Caleb's, right? I mean, so we have this almost orgasmic death of accepting Christ and like begging for Christ's love and being filled with it in, in such a way. I'm filled with Christ's love. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like in this one, and that is, is almost kind of beautiful to watch him die, right? It's sad, but like just with arms open and like sitting up and then just like falling back dead and some sort of orgasmic convulsion. And this one, he is gored has to admit this. And then it's like, just completely covered by all the fucking wood he's been chopping in this movie, you know? And yeah, he's literally buried under his (laughs) hubris. Right. And then, uh, at the beginning of the film, 
very beginning, it kind of like uh, opens with Thomason kind of like, you know, looking up towards the sky and praying for God. And at the very end of the film, she's looking down towards the floor and -hmm. assigning the book, you know, so it's like a full visual you know, echo there. There really is. And I think sometimes, and you know, I, I'm not trying to uh, like deter anybody from religion. Your choices are your choices, you know, but if you're going to something for comfort and hope, like ultimately when you separate yourself so much from community because of that, you will start to feel things like pride and division. You know, you like this, this is me. This is my religion. Everyone else is so separate. Isolate yourself. Yeah. And so like you eventually you're only going to feel these things and what you really wanted comfort and hope from becomes something that maybe you don't like, you know, or you've lost the sense of your fellow man. And uh, I feel like this movie is, is kind of a big finger point at religion in general could be yeah not just like christianity so much as like hey don't forget that we live in a global society where people are different and people have different ideas and we all want the same things like whether or not you're super religious you want to feel comfort and you want to feel hope and there's a lot of gold to mine here a lot of this is incidental and built in because they're puritans who are afraid of witches and that they believe in them (laughs) that's right like it's it's all kind of built in but we kind of see it playing out in the the most real and, and almost historical way we possibly could in this movie mm-hmm. you know as compared to like say um you know the scarlet letter or although that doesn't have witches but um or even like the crucible the crucible yeah. yeah i mean so like when thinking about the crucible as compared to this like i think more like buckles on hats yeah the crucible right? seems like a little more muppety than this but yeah it's still really really good it obviously. is no shade to arthur miller no. i mean like he made a really good play and a very good like film adaptation has come out about that you know but if i put these two things together but it always seemed like less about religion and more about community par- paranoia yes. and this really brought in religion a lot more to it me. does yeah i mean it's just like someone read arthur miller and they're like hey hold my beer you know yeah which segues into like the bigger theme here to me like the takeaway theme maybe like one of them would be the trap of puritan womanhood and the draw of feminism yes right so thomason's journey through the repressive patriarchal portrayal of puritan society and into the dark murderous liberation of the witches yeah right and the act of removing her clothing is casting off their strict and intense societal roles to gain independence and in this time and place a full witch is basically her only alternative. No, you're either this or that. Outside right? of, you know, Tay in the Wind or whatever and trying to find <laughs> the Native Americans like Dances with Wolves or something. I don't know. <laughs> How many times are you going to bring up Nell during a 24 month? I swear. I if know. we can somehow talk about Nell during Midsummer, I will be so proud of us. It cracked me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Thomason, in a way, has actually not escaped her previous religiosity, but merely changed its direction turning to murder in exchange for freedom. So it's just like the other side of the same coin and she's in the same prison, just a different one. Yeah, but which one's more attractive? She's still isolated. Exactly. That's the question. Because that brings to us like the the discomfort that we see 40% of this audience hating, right? Or at least being uncomfortable with, which is that very particular bouquet of complicated emotion that you feel from this. Which side is evil? Who do we root for? Are we happy for Thomason? Is there a bittersweetness there? I think all of that results in audience discomfort, especially for those of them who signed up for a simple horror movie where they could be scared, hold their date's hand and go home. Nope. You know, and we're, we're presented with these questions like, am I happy for her? Is it a tragedy? Is this good? This is bad. It's all of those things. Right. And that's the message, I think. 
There is. I mean, well, that is the message. It's the options that she had in front of her and the only options. That's deep. I mean, I, I feel like I have... I didn't really feel that. You know what I mean? Like I've from the the time that I watched this movie to now, I have a very clear idea of how I feel for Thomason by the end of the movie, right? And maybe that has something to do with how I feel about religion or how I view like the situation that she was in, right? And I am very, very happy for her. Like I feel like she is actually free. I am, but I'm sad, right? Because that's it. This is her life now. She's got these women and she's got her billy goat. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of all she wrote. Like, she's going to be murdering children for the rest of her life. And she's trapped. That's not what she wanted. You know, she's going to wear pretty dresses and have the taste of butter. You know, great. She might see the world. Who knows? You know, maybe she'll segue into an episode of Penny Dreadful. I don't know. but <laughs> Or maybe someday it'll be like Bewitched. I mean, but <laughs> I... because. <laughs> Yeah, but instead of like uh, wagging her nose, she's got to go to the mortar and pestle real quick. She's <laughs> like, Darren, bring me that baby. With the neighbor's crotch goblin. <laughs> bring me that crotch goblin. I got to fly. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, those are very all interesting questions. And I feel like everyone has to sit down and watch it and decide for themselves, you know, because there are parts of this movie where I feel so angry at her parents. Right. And the thing is, is that if I were living in that time period, would I feel angry? Probably not, because it's more commonplace. You know, would I look at a family who would raise their children like that today, like very puritanical, very, very religious? Yeah, I would say, like, you shouldn't treat your children like that. Let them make their own decisions but they later on. They really love the shit out of their children. So they it do. shows that di- dichotomy, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all there. I mean, like, again, who do we root for? In this situation, like, Thomason is clearly our main character, right? We want her to survive. We want her to be happy no matter what. And I feel like the choices that she made, like you said, were because, like, she didn't really have her own agency. She had two options, and that's it. Maybe the takeaway, which everyone's uncomfortable with, is that we are all of us one bad day or one bad week away from ruining our lives and ruining the lives of everyone around us. I feel that is probably the case for all of us every single week. You know what I mean? It just depends. Like Tuesday was good, but Thursday I really wanted to like fucking run off naked with the billy goat. I don't know. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's, there's something to be said about the way this film ends. And whenever she is walking into the woods naked, she's removed her shift, right? Mm-hmm. And she's walking into the woods with Black Philip, who's now back to being a goat naked. She gets to those women, right? And it's it's frightening. That entire scene is frightening. And it sounds frightening, right? But she goes up to it so willingly, right? That I feel like she likes the choice that she made better. She may not like it in the future, but at that particular moment, she does. And when she rises into the air naked, just as tall as the trees that we talked about earlier, right? She has like overcome the pinnacle of her fucking everything. Whatever. You know, I just like it. I I, like like it it too, but I'm still sad for her. It's a tragedy, but it's bittersweet, you know, like you have to be okay with it in a way. (laughs) But, you know, it's, 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 it is a tragedy. You know, it's like, it's that just made me weirdly. Think of like Luke Skywalker. 
for some reason. Why? Because Obi-Wan's like, come, save the universe with me, right? Save the princess. And he's like, no, I don't think so. And then his aunt and uncle die. His whole family dies on the planet. He's like, I'm ready. And, you know, it's like Obi-Wan can go to him and be like, oh, good. Glad you could tear yourself away. <laughs> okay, well, that-, that was his only option. You know, it's like the only thing that could happen good for him is that, the, you know, it's the same thing with her here. It's like, okay, glad you could tear yourself away from your bloody mess of your family. I don't know. I just, I feel like. What she should have done is really tried to get back to the fucking settlement. And that was going to say, she had a third option, no matter what. I mean, she wouldn't have survived, probably. It was like, sign up, but, well, can I just check it out and give it back to you? And then, like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> just like, can I read it first? I mean, she knew, though, that, that, that she was in mortal danger. Those witches and the, yeah. the you know, I don't want to go into the segue of like a weird sequel or an alternate version of this. Oh, God, please don't. But that, that goat would have fucking gored her to death. You know, she would have been dead at that point. Well, and it became a man. Because I, mean, I think it was interested in, in the mother. I think it was interested in the twins. It was interested you know? in all of it. It was interested in all of them. I mean, just like the devil, it wants all of it. And she right? was last woman standing, you know? It was like, we're going to take advantage of the situation that we engendered and, you know, engineered, and, and you're going to be one of us now. One of us. One, one of us. us. <laughs> so say we all. Uh, maybe if she would have just taken that walk in the woods, she would have come across Bert the horse and could have ridden it, side saddle to freedom. I don't know. Or to serve another family. <laughs> I will say, just as we're coming to the close of this, watching this movie with subtitles is amazing because when that bird is doing its familiar breastfeed, the subtitle describing the sound in the background is peck, peck, peck. <laughs> I lost my shit. I don't think I've ever laughed while watching The Witch and I was guffawing with laughter at that. Ruined the moment. Just ruined. Although I ruined another moment for you from the other room. You sure did. Yeah. And I think we've already made that noise. We might as well do it again, though, right? Witch! God bless Goblin for making that sound back. Not Crotch Goblin. Never bless <laughs> Just us. Goblin. Just Goblin. Just plain Goblin. All right. So I've got a, a lot of fun facts. A bevy? Yeah. I don't know if they're fun, but they're informative. Okay. So facts. All right. So although the film's plot was intended to be taken literally, director Robert Eggers has spoken about a few small hints he and the filmmakers left throughout the film that one might interpret as reasoning behind the events beyond the obvious supernatural. Okay. To me, I'm thinking at the end with the the well-dressed, dark-clad man, and then she's joining the rest of the naked women, you know, pimp and whores. I mean, he does wear a nice That's boot. another option back in... You know, certain time periods, you know, okay. certainly. Yeah, that that seems fairly obvious that I've never really thought of. Yeah. And okay. then uh, obviously also William is shown holding a rotten cob of corn, which has been mistaken by some people that are trying to deep dive into this as ergot, which is a, a fungus that produces the hallucinogen ertogamine, which is commonly accepted as a cause of hysteria that's involved in cases of witchcraft. Yes. However, ergot is mostly commonly found in rye and other cereal grasses and doesn't grow on corn. But that's really interesting to me because they were mentioning that there was a blight on all of their food, not just the corn, right? Everything they were trying to grow. And back in that time and place, this whole setting, a lot of people are say, historians say that a lot of this stuff People's historical accounts could have been from eating essentially these hallucinogens without even realizing it. I totally forgot that that was a listed probable cause of all the hysteria in Salem was that all their food was fucking tainted. With hallucinogens. Yes! 
oh my God, I totally forgot about that until just now. And I didn't even put obviously those two things together because the food they were eating was bad. High religion, folklore, alone in a forest, baby disappears, all this other stuff, you know. Witches. Witch. Witch. Or hallucinogens. Speaking you know, of the whole thing could have been, which okay. is just interesting. I'm at my hallucinogen right here for the rest of these fun facts. <laughs> so it's interesting to, to think about next time you watch it. Oh my God. I can't wait to watch it again now. So Black Philip asks Thomason, what's thou like the taste of butter? Yes. So in the 15th and 16th centuries, the Catholic Church declared that eating butter was a bigger sin than lying, blasphemy, or impurity. My God, Paula Dean would have the, never stood a chance. The Protestant Reformation leader Martin Luther railed against the edict which was often only enforced on the poor. Oh. So if Wouldst Thou Like the Taste of Butter is also a very historical reference. Classism. Mm -hmm. All right. So director Robert Eggers said in an interview that the best behaved animal actor in the film was the hare, the wabbit. (laughs) No. And that the raven and the horse were also easy to work with, but the goat... That goddamn goat <laughs> was not the greatest of all time, but Black Philip, and was reportedly difficult to train. And one of the scenes when Philip lunges at and struggles with the father was not written in the script, and it just happened, and so they filmed it. What? Grabs him from the fucking horns? Yeah, to protect himself? Yeah. Oh my god. I love that. Right? I can't believe that the fucking rabbit was the the thing that was the most trained because that rabbit looks fucking intense. It was staring. I was like, it's right behind the goats. It's like maybe one foot away from those goddamn goats and it's just staring at the camera. I'm like, how are they doing this? My God, that's amazing. That fucking rabbit. <laughs> rabbit. Wascally. <laughs> <laughs> so according to Robert Eggers, he did not direct Harvey Scrimshaw which is the boy, Caleb, through most of his difficult scenes of the film. In those scenes, Scrimshaw was directed by Ralph Innocent. Ooh. Eggers had no children at the time, and while Innocent was a father of two and frequently works as an acting instructor to children and knew much better how to coach a young boy. This wasn't planned, but Eggers admitted to Innocent uh, catching on that Scrimshaw had a hard time understanding Eggers' direction. So according to Eggers, Innocent used Scrimshaw's passion for soccer and coached him like Scrimshaw was preparing for a high-stakes game of football. Oh, and it shows. That his death scene, I was like, you could not have acted that better. I I feel like, and I already said this. Innocent needs to get a fucking director's award <clears throat> for that shit. He really does. Because that scene, like, I have never been so immersed in that one particular moment in that movie as I was watching it this time. Like I said earlier, I'm so wrapped up in like authenticity and setting and cow eyes. And then last night I was just like, boy, like (laughs) where is your Oscar? Like for real, he's so good. And he's good in other moments in this movie too. It's a very subtle performance. Right. And he was good all the way through. I mean, literally, when he's down there by the brook or whatever, when he's waking up in the morning and sort of like ogling his sister a little bit, you know what I mean? And things sort of continue. I was just like, okay, but for a child of that age to sort of convey that emotion and like what it's like to be at that time, to be that young and have to be considered a man, you know? I sort of all like, like, I feel like with all the people in this movie, he was the most like good person. Yes. I think his intentions were really good. Like he really wanted to. He wanted to help. He wanted to cause peace. He was not an instigator of anything ever. 
He just wanted to make his parents happy and he wanted to also just like he wanted his sister to be happy. Yeah. But he also just wanted to be a kid sometimes, you know? And yeah. I'm just like, I it really is like a good character and a nuanced performance that I am like kicking myself for not realizing earlier. Really good for a mid- middle child too. I just feel like that goat was in his ear at night going, Oh Jan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my nose, don't gore me. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously this was Robert Eggers' directorial film debut. He had only done some short movies and written the script for The Witch, but unbeknownst to him, his editor, so his editor, not his producer, Louis Ford, had passed the script on producers Lars Knudsen and Jay Van Hoy, with whom she was working with at the time. Eggers was horrified since he didn't, since he didn't consider the script finished at the time, but fortunately the producers loved it. They did suggest that he simplify the structure, which was originally divided into five acts, each told from the perspective of one of the family members. Four years later, financing was in place. So I think that's interesting. And they kind of reeled him in because like that was his idea of a conventional movie. I mean, this is very conventional compared to that. A movie divided into five acts, each told from the perspective of one of the family members to me is a very conventional movie. <laughs> like that's the shit I want to watch. Maybe conventional to me. Conventional I don't know. to Well, it's not, it's unconventional, but to everybody else. Yeah. yeah. It'd be a much better novel. Right. So, uh, God, I wish that would exist so I could just read it. I just want to know. Like an extended version of this movie or something? I want to read the short chapter that's based on the perspective of Black Phillip. But also kind of forces you into completion of a story for each of those characters. And I like how it's edited where we don't know really what's happening with Caleb off screen. That's true. You know, he just kind of appears again. And you're everything, all the gaps in this movie from editing or from not filming it are more horrifying in that way because they're implied right and like we have no idea you know and i mean like we don't really know what happens to the twins you know i mean like and that's good and that's frightening so but i would love to read that maybe not watch it i'd love to read it so bathsheba garnet (laughs) wow had some difficulty preparing for the scene where her character the witch eats baby sam Her acting technique is usually trying to find even one redeeming quality in her characters to add layers of depth to them, which was almost impossible for her as she was playing an inhuman monster eating a baby. She eventually succeeded by getting into the mindset of PETA as a hungry individual who eats this cute baby because she sees it not as a living creature, but like an object she must consume to survive. I mean, I don't know how that's like PETA. That's really kind of the opposite of PETA, isn't it? Oh, it's just a broccoli, maybe. I don't know. I I really need this broccoli to survive, so I'm going to eat it. (laughs) What? Oh, method, Bathsheba. And her name is Bathsheba, which, of course, is a very witchy name. Yes. (laughs) I mean, like, really, like, just a couple years later or something, like, what, Conjuring came out? Or maybe, like, around the same time, and that witch's name was Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As a hungry individual who wants to eat this cute baby because she sees it not as a living creature. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever you need to do to make this movie. I mean, like, I would have been like, reel yourself in. We literally just need a picture of your ass churning <laughs> this baby like it's a piece of butter. <laughs> There's so much witch butt in this movie. I'm like... Oh, but that witch cackle. <clears throat> man, she does the best witch's cackle. She really is very good at that. So is she the witch both as like the... She was the main witch. The gnarled woman and the attractive one in the red cloak? No, no, that was an that was a model actress Okay, who played the young virgin. Bathsheba is the older one that we see churning up the baby and the one that she, we see suckling on the, mm-hmm. the goat and then turning around and cackling. It's a horrifying creation. She's, supposedly she's the lead witch. The makeup in this movie. Yeah. Subtle, but good. So 
My last one. Okay. The Satanic Temple has endorsed this movie and hosted several screenings of the film. Their spokesperson, Jex Blackmore, <laughs> addressed the film as, quote, an impressive presentation of satanic insight that will inform contemporary discussion of religious experience. It certainly will. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't find these witches to be satanic other than like what Black Phillip does. No, they're very satanic. They're the idea, the cartoon idea of satanic, right? Yeah. They're the opposite end of the coin. Like, you know, like they say, you know, the devil isn't anti-religious, right? It's super religious. It's part of the same religion. No, the devil knows the Bible. The devil yeah. has to exist because of religion. Exactly, right? Yeah. And so you're just, your morality arrow is just leaning the opposite direction. That's it. I feel like though... These facts are very fun because of the names Beth Sheba Garnet and Jex Blackmore. You're welcome. I will change both of our names to that. Which one do you want to be? If you play Harry Potter Legacy, those could be your next character names. You sign me up. I'll be the Sheba Garnet for sure. Although Jex Blackmore, that sounds sexy. That sounds like a Slytherin to me. And I'm not. I'm a Hufflepuff. Well, Beth Sheba could be a Hufflepuff name. Yeah. Maybe. Those were actually those were really fun facts. How did you doubt yourself? My God. Well, thank you. I love it. But we have to ask some questions about the witch. And we're going to start with what might seem obvious, but is the witch a horror movie? Yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, but like. In every conceivable way. It is. But to every fucking body, you know. I feel, if you require a Dolby shock, maybe not. But I think you're in the minority. It's a It's a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree that it is, but I know some people who have seen this movie and they're like, it's boring. It's not a horror movie. I wasn't scared. And, you know, and I'm like, well, maybe go watch it again. Or maybe just like we say on this podcast all the time, expand your thoughts on what horror can be or could be. And why? who cares if it fits into a category if you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it? Just because you didn't enjoy it doesn't mean it's not a horror movie. You know, I mean, it's like you're mixing your I don't know. It's like, I don't know what to say to someone like that. None of those people exist. Well, Silence of the Lambs and Seven are not horror movies because they're good. You know, it's that horror ghetto mindset exactly. that, I, that I feel like is just stupid. Yes, I completely agree with you because I feel like the same people who would say that The Witch is not a horror movie are the ones who would say that Silence of the Lambs is not a horror movie, right? But hey, it is. Like, full on. There is no adjacency here. Like, this is a horror movie start to finish. Or Jaws, yeah. Yeah, or but we've had this discussion many, many times. And we'll have it again in the future. Were you scared while watching The Witch? Yeah. yeah. Maybe not on not as much on subsequent watches. Yes. The first time I remember the times I was scared. I was scared in the forest. I was scared with the familiar. I was scared with the witch. Um, reveal with Caleb. I was scared for him. Mm-hmm. I was scared when the witch lands on the goddamn roof and there's no fucking lights in there and they can't see yep. what's going on and they see realize something's in there with them. Mm-hmm. And then just like the rest, you know, like uh, you never know what's going to happen and you could, you things are so random sometimes seemingly that you don't know what. And uh, so there was this very, very definite sense of dread that I had that you could cut with a knife. And the atmosphere is something that you could cut with a knife in this movie. Yes. And so I think that works for it especially well on first watches. Yes. The first watch of this movie, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I feel like slow burn. Yeah. But I feel like it's a building slow burn. Building so much that by the end of it, I was just like, oh, my fucking God, like in this movie, because I am so tense right now and i feel like a lot of that culminates like you said inside that goat pen when he locks them in you have this movie where we have seen things in the daylight we've seen things at night 
But this movie suddenly becomes The Descent, you know, and like it's dark. There's something in there. It is frightening. And like it's moments like that and maybe like the the Raven scene that are just like would be considered normal scares. But the way that it's presented is just so off-putting. And I think that uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that's where this movie succeeds in its tension and its scariness. It's just being completely uncomfortable, completely off-putting. It's not afraid to make its audience uncomfortable. And a lot of audiences aren't okay with that. That's right. And that makes it successful. Um, Out of five stars, what would you rate the witch? Five stars. Five stars for sure. I feel like this movie is so good. And I feel like oftentimes we talk about movies being more important than they are like good. And I think this movie is both important and good. Yeah. For just filmmaking in general, for horror, for sure. I can't think of ways to make it better. You know, like, I don't know, maybe there's a better version of this movie out there, you know, in someone's mind or page. But I think that Robert Eggers knew exactly what he wanted to do. He wrote it. He directed it. To every detail and it is exactly what it needs to be it's yeah. very distinctively its own movie there's oh, yeah. nothing quite like it nope. and it stands on its own and i can't think of anything really wrong with it um the first time i watched it i had some dialogue issues you know so some people might have to watch it depending on your speakers with some subtitles especially for um innocence lines where he can be a little throaty yeah, he is. with his old english or not even old english but you know old timey mm-hmm Ye old English, ye old Englishy, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know that's that's a really a, like a nitpick for me. And I feel like this movie kind of ushered in a whole like crop of films that we have seen since then, right? Like I I don't know where this falls in the A twenty four horror timeline. I need to like look at that a little bit more. But this is where I first realized what A twenty four was, kind of. And like I feel like a lot of movies that came out after The Witch have had this kind of like highbrow horror-ness to them. And I feel like this movie is super important because it brought us things like Midsommar and brought us everything that A24 goes after as a distributor. And I feel like it's super important. Well, every few years, I feel like, or even sometimes decades, you know, there's a movie that comes along that breathes some new life, whether it's needed or not, into a genre. And this is one of those. You know, and there's quite a few of those around this time. We got, you know, Hereditary and we got It Follows and we got Witch. This is like 2015 to, t- to 2020 was a really good time in horror, especially for A24. And they helped usher in a lot of it, you know. Well, I mean, I feel Babadook like Duke and. Yes, you know. exactly. And I feel like we owe I, our entire experience going to things like The Overlook, right? Where we see some of these like highbrow horror movies or movies that are trying to be that, you know, um, imitators. And I feel like the witch like kind of started that, or maybe that's just the way that I experienced it. It was part of it. You know, yeah. it was part of it. I don't think it was the first to really like start, you know, I think there was a buildup around, mm-hmm. you know, 2012 that started 2014 and then like really just picked up from the witch and on, you know, and it's like, that's part of around the time where we started seeing this renaissance and horror, you know, what we would call the new crop, you know, and yeah. uh, it kind of really got us starting to talk about horror more as friends. Yes, that's true. That's right. And it's because of these new this new crop and new life breathed into the genre that we even have a podcast, I think. That is true. So, I mean, one could say that because of The Witch, the foam flamers exist. So this, this episode Probably. has been coming for a while, right? So, all right. So finally, and why? Who's the hottest guy in The Witch? Happy New Year! Happy New Year! 
Uh, I think we can probably skip this question. Yeah, I mean, there's no real answer to this, you know? So, I don't know. By default, Ralph Ineson. I guess, yeah. I would not. Yeah, I don't it's know. fine. Is a crow involved? Uh, you know, the wabbit. <laughs> that really intense wabbit. I'm like, look deep into my eyes. <laughs> Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation about the witch, but that doesn't have to wrap it up completely. We want to know what you think about our conversation and the movie. You can find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Ooh, do you want to live deliciously? I do. Do you like the taste of butter? I do. Do you like pretty dresses? Remove my shaft. Oh. (laughs) Take a look at my corn fungus. Is that corn fungus? (laughs) Keep that fungus away from my book. We have more content coming out for you next week. We are continuing our conversation into A24 by talking about Midsommar. So some Ariaster coming at you. Get ready for that wet grinch salad. That's right. But <laughs> there could be even more wet grinch salad over on Patreon because there's a poll up of other A24 movies. So help us choose the movie that we're going to cover by heading over to patreon.com slash the film flamers. Join the family and lick that poll. Or just take it. <laughs> or take the pulse. Which is also an innuendo. Okay. I feel like I'm becoming a witch slowly. Because I'm flying off to have some... And gobbling baby chunks. <laughs> <laughs> that is my everyday look and you know it. <laughs> I wonder if that was just paste chunky salsa. No, it was baby. <laughs> I like to be transported. Let's feel as baby. You. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's go fly off and have some sweet dreams. Oh, you could have said, let's lube up our broomsticks. <laughs> My God! My God, it's Cocktober all over again. <laughs> Dictember. <laughs> Dictember. Deek.